We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You're listening to Founder Stories with Anouk and Barack. Brought to you by F2 Capital in partnership with IDC International Radio and No Camels. You need to drink coffee black and bitter, like life. It's a discussion between the two friends who kind of argue about how do you drink coffee. Do you drink it like sugar and milk or like black and bitter? Um, that was the first sentence I wrote 15 years ago. Hi, and welcome to Founder Stories. Today on the show, we have Daniel Shinhar, CEO of Cloudtech, who also leads technology investments in Israel for Access Industries, both owned by Sir Leonard Blavatnik, the world's 27th wealthiest person with a reported net worth of over $20 billion. Access has investments like Alibaba, Yelp, Snap, and Beats Music. Daniel sits on the board of global tech companies like Rocket Internet, Deezer, and Global Fashion Group and has over $100 million of investments in Israeli tech companies. Daniel started his career as an intelligence analyst in an elite IDF intelligence unit. That experience inspired him to pen the thriller Red Skies, which became an Israeli bestseller after a year of vetting by Israel's Mossad and military censor. So Daniel, you work for Len Blavatnik, who's the 27th wealthiest person in the world with a net worth of something like $19.5 billion. It doesn't really matter if it's 19.5 or, or 25.5. I can't, you know, tell the difference. It's but, hard um, to spend. It's, uh, it's hard to spend, although in 2017, he received a knighthood from the Queen for services to philanthropy. So I guess he spends some of it. What have you learned from him? Wow, I thought you're you know going to start with the either questions. I'm sorry we're not starting <laughs> yeah. with a question about you. It's like yeah, who cares tell us about, about the billionaire? Yeah, yeah, yeah no. <laughs> tell us what you learned about him. So in this case, I learned that you probably need to look in life for something other than just money, because at the end of the day, there is a limit to the amount of um, breakfast you can eat, and dinners you can eat, and drinks you can drink, and movies you can watch. And at some point, the kind of the marginal benefit of cash is decreasing. And you need to look for things that make life worth. If you have a lot of money, you can donate. In other cases, you can do. You can find um, your passion in art or in your family. Yeah. Uh, so my key learning is to kind of look for things that are greater than yourself. What do you think of you know Elizabeth Warren, the American presidential candidate, who, like more and more people, believes billionaires shouldn't exist? Even though he's a billionaire who gives, just like, you know, um, Bill Gates, one person should not be able to decide what to do with so much money. It should be down to governments. If you ask me, some of the governments, uh, actually, you know, Israel is actually better managed in, uh, than some of the other countries. But uh, and we can argue about that later. I trust people like them more than I trust some of the governments because they are business people. And when they give money, they know how to manage it in a way that's uh, impactful. Obviously, working for a billionaire, kind of, it would be more difficult to answer anything different than billionaires should exist. But I actually do believe that people should enjoy you know, the fruits of their um, work and innovation and, um, and the risks they take. You can live your life without taking any risk from today, and you'll be fine. If you take a risk, you should... You know, you should enjoy the rewards. And I think we should be grateful that these people, at least you know, in this specific case, 
they give back a big portion of what they're making. Daniel, you served in the Talpiot unit of the IDF as an intelligence officer. What was the job? What exactly do you do as an intelligence officer? That's the point where I tell you, I can tell you what I did, but then I have to kill you. <laughs> uh, but the better answer would be just read the book. The intelligence analyst is a person who gets a lot of information on a specific subject, and he has to kind of analyze it and decide what to do with it. And uh, usually it's like a 19-year-old girl or a boy who gets a lot of responsibility, and they are the subject matter experts on something that could be... Life or death. Yeah, it could be a specific terrorist organization. It could be a specific type of um, weapon in Iran, and they work with a small team, long hours, you know, trying to keep us safe. Can you share what was your subject? From my uh, kind of interactions with uh, the military censorship, I've learned that when a show is going on air, I need to be careful. But um, the kind of short version is I dealt with terrorism, anti-terrorism, both with kind of local Palestinian terrorism and also with um, global terrorism. So you wrote a novel called Red Skies, and it's about, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Sar and Ali. Uh, I didn't read it because it's not yet come out in English. Anyway, Sar and Ali were born on the same day, one in Israel and the other one in Nablus. And two decades later, in a dusty African city cafe, they meet for the last time, knowing that only one of them will come out alive. Why did you write this book? Was it a specific story you had wanted to tell for a long time? And how much is based on your experience in the military? So this is not a true story. It's inspired by um, experiences that uh, I or my friends uh, in the army. And um, certainly if you look at the years, kind of the years of the, the Second Intifada and uh, kind of the when Al-Qaeda did 9-11, etc. So these are kind of the events that were around me in my service. The story is about two friends, as you mentioned, an Israeli and Palestinian who meet at an American summer camp. Peace was in the air. As a 13-year-old, I went to the summer camp and met uh, Palestinians and Egyptians and Jordanians in a summer camp, which was sponsored by the Israeli government, called the kind of the uh, mm. post-Oslo days. And um, since those days, I was thinking, what happens if you know I make these friends, I go home, I go to the army, because everyone goes to the army, and I knew I want to go to, uh, to do something uh, significant. And then what happens if um, a few years from now, I meet this Palestinian friend on the other side of the... Conflict. Yeah, you know, I knock on a door in uh, Nablus and the guy who opens the door is um, this old friend from camp. And I kept kind of thinking about that and, uh, you know, it happened to be that when I joined the army, I dealt exactly with, uh, you know, with things that could happen with, uh, uh, with terrorists. Terrorists in the Second Intifada were not only Hamas and Jihad, were also kind of what used to be called Fatah, so more normal, not extreme um, religious people who decided to kind of cross the lines and become terrorists. So it wasn't like, it wasn't a crazy idea that I'll meet someone like that. And um, just following um, terrorists for a few years of your life, you also get to see an angle that other people don't get to see. Like what is a terrorist? When he wakes up in the morning, how does he look like? You know, what does he drink? And, you know, that he like sugar in his coffee. And, you know, that he cry when um, his lover leaves him. And um, I thought it's kind of a very interesting uh, angle to be able to tell a story of how a terrorist looks like in kind of uh, the full kind of colors of a person. 
not going into politics and not trying to justify, obviously you cannot really justify uh, terror, but I thought it's a good story to tell and the combination between the story about two friends who become enemies, uh, that was one story I want to tell, and then just the angle of showing um, what the life of a terrorist look like, and also a little bit how the life of an intelligence officer look like. So maybe three different stories I wanted to tell, uh, who kind of came into life with one book that you haven't read yet. <laughs> how did you start? What was your process? I left the army after six years, and then I uh, went to South America, like um, half of the Israelis, uh, backpacking, and then I had time, so I wrote this story, which I was thinking about for many years during the army. I wrote it, um, it was basically done, like not polished, but done, and I kept telling myself, okay, when I have time, I'll finish it and publish it. That was 2005. Um, Do you remember the first sentence? Yeah. You need to drink coffee, black, and bitter, like life. Uh, it's a discussion between the two friends who kind of argue about how do you drink coffee? If you drink it with like sugar and milk or like black and bitter. Um, that was the first sentence I wrote 15 years ago. It might have changed in the, in the published version. So it sets there, this version, for uh, 10 years, I think. I didn't do anything with it. Every year around this time, you know, December, you have uh, New Year resolutions. And I would have the first one would be go back to doing sports. The second would be go back to kind of writing the story. But you know, life kind of hits you. I came back from South America. I went to university. I started working, and every year I kept pushing this one for the next year, until four and a half years ago, my son was born, Omer, and then I had an early midlife crisis. I was thirty-four ish. And I remember holding him like two months till uh, kind of um, the phase where you can't really talk to them. And I was still speaking to him, telling him, you know, what I think he should do in life. I was <laughs> giving this uh, fatherly speech. And then I felt a little bit um, like a fraud for maybe the strong word, but uh, phony because I said, you know, you're working 26 hours a day. That's the only thing we really do. I didn't spend time on hobbies or um, friends other than kind of my wife. Uh, then how can you tell this child that he should follow his dreams and do what he wants? And so maybe you should also do something that's kind of bigger than yourself. And I went back to kind of my New Year's resolutions from the past decade. I had a notebook and every year it was back to that um, finish the book thing. So um, I decided to do that and uh, I gave myself a deadline. I think it was December 2017 was the deadline. So I had almost two years, a year and a half to get there. And then I started working on making it happen. In the end, the story was already there. It was more about editing it, polishing it, finding a publisher. It's amazing because you and I met around that time because we both had sons around the same age and we would stroll at 6 a.m. Right, I think even 5.30. And uh, I had no idea you were working on this book. And I was going through an early midlife crisis. Should have told me. <laughs> you helped me with advice. I was changing from doing a startup to moving into VC. And right. you, you did what you wanted to do. And same for you. And hopefully we'll have an, another midlife crisis. At <laughs> it's very productive. A few wrinkles later, here you are. Just a few. Yeah, just a few. Um, how is investing like intelligence work? In the way I look at investments, you meet a new company and then you try in a very short period of time to learn as much as possible, to become as close as you can to expert, which is difficult. So you bring on experts, 
you spend days and nights kind of reading, talking to people. So you're doing everything you can to learn everything you know about everything there is to know about this company and the space. You find a company you like, and then you spend hours and hours learning everything you can about this company. In intelligence, people tell you, okay, your job now is this terrorist or this unit in a certain army, and you have a certain amount of time to learn everything you can. It's easier in a way in the intelligence because you have a big army behind you and you can, according to you know foreign newspapers, you can listen to what they talk about, can almost read their minds. So it's easier to really make yourself an expert around something. In our case, we don't, uh, you know, we don't intercept calls and we don't read emails, but we, we make calls to everyone we can. We go and meet people from our network. We read, we pay experts. So one part is just learning really fast a new subject and then trying to execute on a deal. In intelligence, you don't execute on a deal, you execute on an operation which could be uh, stealing the papers from an uh, Iraqi nuclear scientist. And in this case, you're not stealing anything, you're just trying to close the deal, right? So you need to convince the entrepreneur that it's your money he wants to take. You need to convince your investment committee that they should invest in this company. And you need to beat the competition, bring other investors with you, etc., and just get the deal done. So, Daniel, uh, you've, been, you've been right, you know, often. You have a great hit rate on these investments, but have you ever been wrong? And what did you learn from that? Been wrong uh, many times. You have uh, first degree of mistake and second degree. I've been wrong in backing companies who didn't succeed. I've been wrong in not backing companies who really succeeded. Uh, That one hurts more. Well, both hurts. Uh, Both type hurts. Uh, I think the second one hurts more. Now, lately, for some reason, this, this game company has popped up in conversations that I have with people. Even yesterday, I was going for a quiet lunch and I met a guy from the game industry who said, did you hear how well he's doing? They're doing a million point five dollars a day and the company is worth well over billions. And I, I passed, kind of, on that investment. So it hurts. We both did the same mistake, so we can, <laughs> we can, add, we can you know, cry. We can go and stroll together and, yeah. and But I, I'll, I'll add something that when I was in high school, we had to do sports. So in the winter, cold winter, I wanted to do something indoor. And Just for the listeners, yeah. that's not in Tel Aviv. <laughs> not in Tel Aviv, in Ohio. Yeah. And so I chose wrestling, and I didn't care about wrestling. And I was light, and they needed a lightweight person, so I had the spot on the varsity team, and I wrestled, and I lost, and I came back to the bench, and I didn't care. I immediately started reading a book, and one of the seniors, who was very serious, diehard wrestler, looked at me and said, how can you do that? Don't you care? And I didn't care. And that's why I was never a good wrestler. So maybe the mere fact that we spend so much time thinking of those second-degree mistakes means we're in the right business. At least we care. You're right. You just reminded me that um, I was never really good at sports. And once my school, we were like 12, went to this big soccer event, and I was on the bench, like fifth in turn. And so you know, I, I knew I would never play. But then I learned that they have an arm wrestling competition. So I registered to that, and I became the uh, Jerusalem champion in arm wrestling <laughs> below 50 kilos. So you're looking at the Respect. yeah, you're looking at the Jerusalem champion <laughs> below arm 50 kilos. Below now 50 you're kilos. a big guy. You Thank you. That. Thank <laughs> you. That's very kind. That's part of his training regimen. Yeah. What would you say are the common themes in your least and most successful portfolio companies? So um, you want to talk about specifics, or um, I can tell you from us when yeah. we analyze the 
the companies that aren't performing at their best, it's always coming down to the founder dynamics, the health of the marriage. And usually they divorce. And if founder team divorce at an early stage, the company's probably going to fail. Uh, my uh, missus, kind of the second degree of missus, where a company that I didn't invest in and became huge, were either because I just wasn't inspirational enough. I couldn't see how big it could get. I'm going to name the company because it's a good company. It's embarrassing myself, not them. One is Monday. You know, we saw them at very early stage. It's a project management company. You know, we couldn't really, I think, see how it could be a huge multi-billion dollar company. Um, and the second kind of mistake was just uh, bargaining about price too much. So you look at a good company, you like the company, you want to make the investment, maybe you even gave a term sheet, which means you really want to do a deal and you know somebody else comes with a little bit higher price and you lose a deal. One example is uh, Payoneer. Uh, we gave a term sheet to Payoneer and we lost it for like, uh, I don't know, a dollar. Could have made 20 times our money probably. So would you say that's ego getting in the way? Um, it could be, but specifically in those two cases, I think it's uh, just not being smart enough and not seeing kind of far enough. To challenge you again, if you could bring three books with you on a desert island, which would they be? So one book is um, Harry Potter, which in my opinion is kind of you know, once in a generation book because it kind of gave kids a desire to read again. I read it when I was a little bit older, but I could see kind of younger you know, teenagers in Israel who just never read a book before or didn't like to read, returning to read. So can I cheat and take the entire kind of Harry Potter uh, series? Or? Well, well, but it only counts for one. <laughs> it only counts for one. So <laughs> yeah. Harry Potter. Second one is kind of um, a little bit heavier book called uh, The Day Lasts More Than 100 Years. Chingis Aitamatov. Kind of a small story about a family in uh, kind of Siberia, amazingly written. And uh, I would take something more modern nonfiction, a book called Ride and Kill First by Ronen Bergman, which basically tells the story of kind of the assassinations of uh, Mossad and the Israeli intelligence system. And Why do you want to have that on your desert island? Well, it's really big, so you can hit someone with it <laughs> if, you, if you're attacked. Both you and Bergman had to go through the military censors to publish your book. What was that process like? The censorship, they have a very clear uh, law. But uh, because I served in you know, specific units, I have to go through another process called a ministerial committee. So it's a committee of five ministers. So Mossad has to approve it, Shin Bet has to approve it, Ministry of Defense has to approve it, like seven or eight different organizations. Uh, so it's a year-long process. And um, it was like the most difficult negotiation I had to do because you have zero leverage. You know, you've done your MBA at Harvard, you've learned, you know, they tell you how to, you know, you leverage your kind of, you know, whatever, you know, your assets here, you have nothing because they are not restricted by the law of the censorship. They can do whatever they want, basically, and you have nothing to give them. No, you know, no leverage. So it's a very interesting uh, drill in negotiation. And I had to take out big portions of the book and um, change other portions, but they also were convinced in, in some of the parts that are not harmful in any way. And by the way, Bergman uh, gave me good advice. Uh, he basically said, um, you know, you should have think, you should have thought about that in advance, and uh, and you know, maybe not 
uh, you know, just write a different book. But uh, it was too late at that point. So talking about a different book, do you already have other books brewing in your head? I have a bunch of ideas. Um, what I lack is time, fortunately. Um, and I don't want to wait another 15 years. So um, at some point I'll write another book. What I try to do in the meantime, which is shorter or take less time than a book, is um, I have some ideas I share with people who write TV series. And then they kind of develop it into a TV series. So it doesn't consume a lot of time for me. You know, I sit on a flight. Uh, you know, if I don't have a good book to read, I write an idea in a few pages. And uh, so far, I shared two of those ideas with kind of really good uh, writers, script writers, and they develop it into a pitch for a TV series. So I found that to be. It's not the real thing. It's not like writing yourself a full book. But uh, since I don't want to wait 15 years, it stimulates your yeah. creative. Brain. Exactly. It's fun. You know, you get to kind of do something with your ideas and creativity. Yeah. Barack, you and your friend David were thinking about a TV series, right? Based on your... Yeah. I served in the army, not in the intelligence, in the maybe unintelligence, in the infantry. Foot soldier, cannon fodder. They happened to put... You volunteered, right? You were yeah. already 25. They and... put all the volunteers, crazy people together in one unit at one point in time. So out of a pluga of 100 soldiers, 40 were foreigners. Some of them, like my friend David and I, already had our degrees, were working in good jobs and gave it up to do the army. Others, their parents, it was their last step before totally giving up on the kids. And the kids who had problems with drugs and even prison and all the rest. So you can imagine the combination uh, and the chaos and the absurdity that came out of that. So someday we'll, uh, we'll turn you that into You didn't even speak Hebrew. No, like I didn't they... <laughs> speak Hebrew. I cheated on all the tests, speaking of that. It was absurd. It probably put the country at risk. But, uh, <laughs> we're you all actually still here. applied for Harvard while you were, I think, in a... And cops of phone on the border with Lebanon and a little mountain base just because there's absolutely nothing else to do there. So I managed to you put You were in a, in a, what do you call it? Uh, a guard post for eight-hour shifts. Yeah. So like you on a flight, that's when your mind can get... When you're not supposed mm -hmm. to be doing anything but observe, you were <laughs> I was doing my Harvard. GMAT flashcards. And Daniel is write? very disappointed in you yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, I know. I'm just I'm thinking I, of I why did you write, write it. Oh, they have the essay questions. Harvard had five or six, and one of them still bothers me to this day is how do you define success? And I wrote a lame answer. Even though I had many, many days of eight-hour guard shifts, I couldn't crack that one. So, Daniel, I would like to ask you... What does success look like, and do you consider yourself a success? Success, that's actually a question I ask myself a lot, because you set a certain goal, and you say, okay, when I reach that, that will be a success, and then you get to that point, and you still don't feel like a success. So, you know, I don't feel like a success. I don't feel like a failure, but I can say I'm walking around feeling uh, successful. Um, wow. Next time, I'm going to ask you the questions and see how you, <laughs> how you handled them. Daniel, um, first of all, I'm, I'm... But what's your, Anouk, what's your answer? <laughs> How does success look like? What does success look like for me is a reduction of the ego and connecting more with a, with a true self. I get that from my yoga and just um, really speaking from, I think we all have that true self, which is really speaks from the heart. And reducing ego doesn't mean not having dreams and not having ambition and not having... It's just tuning in to that different frequency, which I think when we have kids, when we've had challenges, when we um, have gone through a certain amount of time on this planet, we all, we all know what that true inner voice sounds like. 
That's, that's the that's, best <laughs> answer I've ever heard. That's, Too bad I didn't know you. It's, it's, a, it's a good response. Good, I'm here. So I'll tell you on that. So success, we spoke about um, kind of career or you know writing, which is a hobby. But Barack and I met strolling, you know, walking with our babies. And uh, I think our parents' generation, they never measured success around kind of family. It was about career and money. And today we're in a little bit, you know, fucked up generation where we're expected and expect ourselves to be successful in your career. You expect to have something out of your career, you know, like uh, hobbies. Yeah. And you expect to be a, a great parent. father, a parent, yeah. mother. And I think that's, you know, it's a little bit of a cliche, but uh, when you're kind of dying, hopefully many years from today, looking back on career failures or um, any other kind of failure, the one that really hurts is family. So if I have to tone in on something we didn't discuss, I want, you know, when my time come to feel that my kids are happy and still in touch with me and like me. And um, I think everything else needs to be kind of um, a mean to that end. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Founder Stories is brought to you by F2 Capital in partnership with IDC International Radio and No Camels. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app.